Well, if you got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. We are continuing our verse by verse, chapter by chapter study of the gospel of Luke. And we're not just studying the gospel of Luke in here. We're going to challenge you to study the gospel of Luke with our city groups this week as we break down these same passages in our daily devotionals this week under the Bible study tab on our app Monday through Friday, breaking down these same passages. And then as a family with the table talk, that's a resource for families under the Bible study tab on our app for families to gather together and pray and discuss the word of God together, uh, discuss what they learned in church this morning. And and so I want to challenge you if you're a family and you can even do this with roommates, if you're like in college or whatever, you you can get the, the table talk on the Bible study tab of our app and go and discuss these same verses this next week with your family. We preach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter here at the city church, because we believe preaching that way is more effective at producing healthier disciples of Jesus, deeper disciples of Jesus, more effective disciples of Jesus, more faithful, more steadfast, more generous disciples of Jesus, that that our marriages are going to be richer and that our kids will know what they believe and why they believe what they believe. And I've said over the last month, and I want to remind you again today that what we are doing in this moment as we worship and as we pray and as we study the word we are going to battle like like we are going to battle there is a war happening for your heart and mind and soul and for your kids hearts minds and and souls and so we're, we're not sitting back watching something as if it's theater we're, we're leaning forward, we're engaged, we're worshiping, we're praying, we're crying out to God, we're meeting with God, we're hearing from God, we're studying his word. We're going to battle against our enemy, Satan, against our apathy, against the lust of our flesh. We're going to battle against the idols in our hearts. We're going to battle against our own sin, our own selfishness, our own comfort. We're going to battle against the lies that that we've bought into, the, the lies in this culture. We're battling for right doctrine and we're battling against wrong doctrine. And today we're, we're going to see two different sides, like, like both sides of Jesus, if you will. Like we, we've said in here over the course of this series, as we've studied the gospel of Luke, that, that one of the reasons we're studying uh, the gospel of Luke is to get the full counsel of who Jesus is. Not, not the, not the liberal version of Jesus and not the conservative version of Jesus, but to get the full counsel of who Jesus is and what he taught. And today in this one story. We're going to get both sides. We're going to get the liberal Jesus, if you will, and we're going to get the conservative Jesus, if you will. We're going to get this full kind of picture of the heart and teaching and preaching of Jesus. And when I say today is going to be tough, like I I mean, it's going to be hard. It's literally going to be about as fun as hell. And that's my only joke for today because it's... It's going to be rough. It might just be the most important message you've ever heard in your life. We're not playing games. And so we approach today and the word of God with a lot of seriousness and a lot of soberness this morning. And I would invite you to not lean back and watch, but to lean forward and study. Because your soul may depend on it. Or the soul of your family member, friend, coworker, neighbor could depend on it. This is not a day to sit back and take this lightly. It's a day to lean forward and to pay attention. It's a day to lean, lean in, dive in. Make the most of this time that we have together. 
And one of the ways you can do that is by downloading our app. It's the City Church Lubbock. On there is our message notes. Click message notes. You can follow along with today's message. The verses, the points, the quotes is, are, are all there. We have a lot today. But I want to invite you to, to lean in and to approach today with a, a measure of seriousness and soberness as we study the word of God. So in light of that, would you, would you stand in honor of the word of the Lord? Alyssa Hubden's going to come and read for us this morning. And as she does, I want to remind you what David said in Psalm 19, that, that the word of God is a warning. It's a warning to his servant. It's a reward for those who obey it. And Jesus said that his words would never pass away. So if Jesus is who he says he is, that he's God in the flesh, and he promised us his words would never pass away, then what we have here today is the word of God. And so we submit ourselves underneath it. We don't stand over it. We submit ourselves underneath it. And we trust it and we believe it and we submit ourselves to it. So, Alyssa, would you come and read for us this morning? Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. Good morning, City Fam. If we haven't met yet, my name is Alyssa Hubden. I serve on the prayer team during our services. I am a part of the Alvis City Group. Uh, I am currently in the last couple of weeks of our Discover class, and I'm headed to Thailand this summer. So lots of great things happening this year and this season. Uh, super excited to get to read for you guys this morning. Let's get into it. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. <clears throat> But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> So let me give you a little background for this story, this parable that, that Jesus is sharing. In, in Luke chapter 16, we covered this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Amber preached on these, these verses that, that when Jesus said, if you're trustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches of heaven. No one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And it says the Pharisees who dearly loved their money, they heard all of this and they scoffed at him. So, so once again, Jesus kind of with these verses in this, in the background is, is warning people, rich people with, with lots of money. And we've made the case here before that that's almost all of us. That's almost every single one of us that lives in this country. That, that if you have a home and a couple of cars and you eat three meals a day, then you would be considered rich in the history of the world. And even, to, and even today, like, like right now in the world, you would be considered rich in the top 1% of the richest people who live and in the top 1% of the people who've ever lived on the face of this planet, ever lived. 
And so Jesus is telling this story, this, this parable to, to, to once again kind of get their attention and wake them up to the way the people of God are to conduct themselves. And, and so he tells this story to illustrate that this point that the redeemed are always using their money, time, and resources, their story, their voice, whatever they've got. They're always using, specifically in this story, their money to redeem other people. The, the redeem use their money for redemption. That, that's the illustration that, that Jesus is, is giving him. And so he tells this story about a rich man. It says he's clothed in purple. This would be like bougie. Okay. He's got a big house. He's got a nice car. He's clothed in all the, the, the right stuff, but he ignores the need right outside of his home. He, he, he ignores this man who is struggling and in dire need of someone to help him and to give him compassion. He ignores it, revealing his spiritual state before God. That this ignoring, this, this refusal to have compassion towards this man, this poor man outside of his home and to use money from his great wealth to help this poor man who is sick and who is struggling. He, he refuses to, to use his money to bring about the redemption of this man's circumstances and revealing his state, the revealing that the spiritual state of his heart before God. Well, there's this poor man and his name is Lazarus and he's the, the one that's struggling and they've placed him outside the gate of this rich man's home in hopes and belief that this rich man will help and will fund this poor man in his poor state. Well, they both die. And it says that the poor man, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. That's some translations. Uh, that, that's what it says. And, and, and so what some theologians believe is that the, the righteous dead go to Abraham's bosom. It's a place of paradise. It's not quite heaven yet, but they believe that they go to Abraham's bosom before, before Christ. That's where they went. They went to Abraham, but that after the resurrection, Jesus took them with him to heaven. Some theologians believe that's where people went, the righteous dead before Christ came and rose from the grave. Some theologians just believe but that before Christ, they, they just went to heaven. And this was a way of describing heaven. So, so the poor man dies. He goes to, we'll call it heaven. The rich man dies, and it says he goes to the place of the dead. That's Hades. So again, some theologians believe this is the resting place of the wicked dead until the final judgment when Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. Some theologians just think Jesus is describing a man who died, and he goes to hell. So, but, but, but regardless, the, the ultimate state is the same, that those who are faithful, those who are faithful because of their faith in Christ go to heaven when they die immediately. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And those who are not following Jesus, those who have not placed their faith in Jesus go to hell when they die. This story is probably the most graphic and horrific teaching on hell and it's by Jesus. Like we've, we've got to remember that. that, that the Jesus that we maybe have in our minds, that the, the Jesus, like when, when, when we say like my Jesus would do this or my Jesus would do that, he's not your Jesus. He's Jesus, he's God in the flesh. And here we have the most horrific, the most graphic teaching on hell, and it is by Jesus. One of the most famous skeptics in history, Bertrand Russell, said in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, he said, Jesus' teaching on hell, he said this, is the one profound defect in Christ's character. That, that's how offensive this doctrine, the doctrine of hell, is to our senses. And so, if you accept that, that, that Jesus is God and that he rose from the grave and you've put your faith in Jesus, then this doctrine is true regardless of how it makes you feel.
But if like Bertrand Russell, and at least he was faithful, he was intellectually, he was philosophically faithful. He didn't believe it, but at least he was intellectually and philosophically faithful to who Jesus is. He couldn't, you can't say, well, well, I like Jesus. He's a great moral teacher. He's a good guy. No. No, he's either a liar, a lunatic for saying things like this, or he is Lord and what he said and everything he said is true and right. We can't pick and choose which parts of Jesus we like and that we accept. Bertrand Russell recognized that, 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 that to do that would be intellectually dishonest. It would be philosophically dishonest to say, well, I like Jesus because of, of these things he did and said, but, but I don't like Jesus because of these things that he said. No, you, you, it's, it's a package deal. You either take Jesus for who he is and what he said as true and right because he's God in the flesh or, or you have to reject him as Bertrand Russell did. You see, the question concerning the teachings of scripture isn't, do I like it enough to believe it? The, the question we must ask when we come to the scripture is, is it really true? It matters not whether you like it or I like it. The question is, is what we're reading, is, is it really true? And if it is, then it's incumbent upon us to submit ourselves underneath it, whether we like what we hear or not. And so in light of that today, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the doctrine of hell. This is the doctrine of hell. And, and, and my prayer as we break these verses down is that you're going to see two sides of the same coin to this doctrine. First of all, one side of the coin is the terrifying, unsettling awfulness of this doctrine. I want you to see it and I want you to feel it. That it is terrifying. It is awful. It is horrific. But then on the other side of that same coin, I pray that you see and that you feel the profound rightness and righteousness and justice of God in this doctrine. My prayer is that you see and feel both sides of the same coin. So the doctrine of hell. Number one, Jesus teaches us that hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. Look at verse 26. Abraham says, you, you can't come over here and, and he can't come to you because there's this great chasm, Abraham says in this story that Jesus is telling, there's a great chasm that separates paradise, heaven from hell, and no one can ever cross over. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says this about hell. He calls it the unquenchable fire. It's a, it's a fire that, that never goes out. In Mark chapter 9, verse 48, he says that hell is a place where the maggots never die. They're, they're, that regardless of the, the, the flames of the punishment, that, that's the, the, the torment, the anguish that's happening, that you never die. Jesus says in Mark 9, verse 48, the fire is never quenched. And so in this story that Jesus tells, we learn about hell, that there is no such thing as purgatory. There is no such thing as reincarnation. There is no such thing as annihilation. Meaning that you... You're just dead in the ground and you're not conscious or, or aware or that at some point in hell that you die and you cease to exist. No, hell, Jesus teaches us in this story and in other places like in Mark chapter 9, that hell is eternal. George Whitfield, the, the great revivalist preacher before the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening here in America, here's what he said about hell. He said, after millions and millions of years of being in hell, people will realize they are no closer to the end from when they got there. Scottish Presbyterian theologian, 
Thomas Boston said this about hell. It is a beginning without a middle. It's a beginning without an end. And after millions and millions of years have passed in it, still it is beginning. Hell is eternal. Secondly, hell is conscious. In verse 23 and verse 24, we learn that the rich man in hell with these flames and the torment around him, he he is alive, he can see, he can feel, he's speaking out, he can think, he can remember, he's broken over his condition and there is regret. He is filled with regret that he did not heed the warnings that came his way before he died when he still had time. Now it's too late and we see that he is fully conscious of everything that is happening around him. He can see and feel and sense everything that's going on around him. He is fully conscious. He's not asleep. He is not dead. He is conscious in hell for all eternity. Third, hell is punishment. Hell is a punishment. Verse 23, we we see physical punishment. He says, the rich man says, I'm in torment. I'm in anguish in these flames. The the Greek word for torment means to pound something. It's literally like torture. It's where we get our English word torture comes from this Greek word for torment. Torment. The rich man says, I'm in torment. Verse 25, Abraham says, you're here because you lived a life in rebellion against God. And and that's why you're there. You rebelled against God. You lived a life of rebellion against God. And so you are here because of that rebellion. It's a punishment. In verse 26 through 28, we see that it's not just a physical punishment. It's a mental and emotional punishment with the knowledge that this is never going to end. Seeing those, we get this picture of those in hell being able to see those in paradise. And so as a result, there is great regret and pain and physical, emotional, psychological remorse, distress, There's a panic we see in this man over his family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors that that have not heard, that are not aware, or or that, that are scoffing at this idea of hell, of being in the place where he's, and so there's this panic. He he don't want anyone to go where he, he don't want anyone that he loves and cares for to experience the, the pain and the torment that he is going to be in for the rest of eternity. And so there's panic that sets in as he wants Abraham to, to send somebody to warn his family members, his friends, his coworkers, and his neighbors. There's intense psychological, mental, emotional punishment that's happening here. You might think punishment for what? Why is he being punished? Why would people be punished in a place like this in hell? Well, Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned. Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every last one of us, myself included, you have sinned against a holy and righteous God, an infinitely holy and infinitely righteous and infinitely just God. In every place in scripture where someone encounters the presence of God, sees God, they fall on their knees. They, they, they look away. 
When Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees God high and lifted up, right? He, he sees this picture of heaven. He falls on his, his knees and, and he's, he's shying away from the presence and the, because of the, the holiness and the, the righteousness of God. And he falls, he says he falls down like a dead man in the presence of God. Because that's how holy God is and it's how sinful and wicked you and I are in the presence of a holy and righteous God. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death. There's a punishment. There's a, a fine to be paid for breaking God's law. You break man's law, you pay man's fine. You break God's law, you break his eternal, infinitely holy law. There is an eternal, infinite punishment as a fine to be paid for that sin. So we've all sinned. We've broken God's law. There's a fine to be paid for our sin. Eternity separated from God in hell. Jesus said in John 3, 16, I've come, so God sent his one and only son, right? So that we might know him and trust in him and believe in him so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. And then in John 3, 17 through 21, he says, I, I haven't come to condemn you. I've come to save you. Why? Why did you come to save us? Jesus says this in John 3, 17 through 21. Go read it. He said, I've come to save you so that you would not perish but have everlasting life because Jesus says this in John 3, because you stand condemned already because of your sin. So I haven't come to condemn you, why? You're already condemned. I've come to save you from that condemnation. You already stand condemned because of your sin, because of your rebellion against God. I've come to save you. I've come to rescue you from that condemnation, from that punishment for your sin. In Revelation chapter 14, speaking of those who have rebelled against God and they've followed the, the Antichrist, they, they've rebelled against God and they followed the spirit of Babylon, which we've talked about here before. We don't have time to dive into all of that, but, but speaking of... Those who rebel against God and they follow the, the beast and they receive the, the, the mark of the beast and they rebel against God in Revelation chapter 14. Here's what it says of those who have rebelled against God. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he shall drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. Does God get angry? Oh, you better believe he does. Anybody that tells you that God's not angry at you or has never been angry at you, you need to run from them fast. What a wicked thing to say about a holy and righteous God. No, no, make no mistake. He is angry at sin. He is angry at our wickedness. And those who have rebelled against him, they're going to experience the wine of God's wrath that's unmixed, that's poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And he shall be those who rebel against God, those who reject God's son, Jesus, and his offer of salvation. It says this, they shall be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. That the, the lamb is Jesus. He is the one watching this and, and overseeing this. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever. Hell is a place of torment that never ends. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is those who have rebelled against God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says it like this. You, you, you think you're just going your own way. You think you're just kind of rejecting God and his offer of salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2, when you do that, you unknowingly are following the devil, the prince of this world. You're following him into that rebellion. And those who rebel against God and reject God's offer of salvation through his son, Jesus, will pay the fine for their sin. Which is a torment that, that, that never ends. Jonathan Edwards 
was right about at least one thing in his sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He said this, to rebel against God is a terrible thing. To fall into the judgment of God is a terrible, terrible thing. Hell is punishment. And then finally, hell is for the wicked. Hell is for the wicked. Maybe you've wondered this question before. Maybe you've heard this question before. Why would a loving God send a good person to hell? How could a loving God do this? How, how do we like rectify? How do we reconcile a, a good and loving, merciful, patient God? How, how do we reconcile that with the anger and the wrath and the, the, the justice of God and, and someone spending eternity in hell if it's eternal torment and pain and anguish that we're reading about. Well, Jesus in Matthew 25 would say that hell was actually prepared for the devil and his demons. It wasn't created for you and me. It was created for the devil and his demons. But Jesus says in Matthew 25 to the goats, to those who rejected him and his offer of salvation, he says, you're, you're going away into eternal punishment in a place that was created for the devil and his demons. It wasn't created for you and me. We were created for a relationship with God, to be in the presence of God. But to those who reject God, who rebel against God and go their own way, Jesus says, you're going to, place of, going to a place of eternal punishment that was created for the devil and his demons. Michael Bird, in his evangelical theology, his systematic theology, he, he says it like this. In the Christian story, Humanity was created to dwell with God in paradise and was made for immortality. Human beings were brought to life in order to know God and enjoy him forever. That's God's heart for you. That's his best for you is to know him and enjoy his presence forever. It's why you were created. The opening narratives of Genesis 1 through 3 show that sin and death were an intrusion into this paradise, not a part of its original design. They are intruders into a habitat that is not rightly theirs. God created you and me for a relationship with himself. Yes, he is a good and loving God who created us to know him and to be in relationship with him and to enjoy him. For He created you for your good and for your joy. But your good, your joy is in his presence. It's in relationship with him. You were created for a relationship with God to be with him forever in paradise. But because of our rebellion, because of our rejection of God and of that relationship with God, there is, there is judgment. Because God is not only loving and kind and merciful, he is also holy. He is righteous. He is just. And he must punish sin as a righteous, good, just judge. God must punish sin, wickedness, and evil. And regarding the, the, the judgment of the wicked in, in the city of Babylon, which, which represents all of those who reject God and his offer of salvation, re regarding their judgment, there's this multitude in heaven and they cry out in Revelation chapter 19, verse three, alleluia, that the smoke from her, from Babylon from their torment, it goes up forever and ever. It never ends. But there's a crowd in heaven who sees this unfold and they say, here's their response to watching this happen, this, this terrifying, awful, horrific sight. One response is, hallelujah. What? What? Like, how, how can that be? How, right? How, how can that be? Why are they responding like this? Well, the answer to that question also answers another tough question about the existence of God, that, that if God is good and he's infinitely powerful, 
then why does God allow evil and suffering? And the answer to that question is, is he doesn't. He doesn't. The existence of hell is the answer to that question. Where the evil, where the wicked will suffer forever for their wickedness and for their evil. We long for justice and we see that in that question. How could, how could a good and loving God, an all-powerful God, allow evil and suffering to continue? We, 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 even in that question, we, we feel, we sense. Don't, don't you, you, you sense the longing for justice that, that's inside of us. That is a good longing. That is a holy longing. It's a God-given longing for justice. God longs for justice in the same way that you and I in this world longs for justice. That is a God-given attribute. This, this longing for Justice for evil to be put down, for suffering to end. And in the doctrine of hell, we see the rightness and righteousness of the justice of God poured out on evil and suffering. Robert Gundry is a New Testament scholar, a Greek scholar, and here's what he said about this rightness of the doctrine of hell. He said this, the New Testament doesn't put forward eternal punishment of the wicked as a doctrine to be defended because it casts suspicion on God's justice and love. No, quite the contrary. To the contrary, the New Testament puts forth eternal punishment as right, even obviously right. It wouldn't be right of God not to punish the wicked so that the doctrine supports rather than subverts his justice and love. It shows that he keeps faith with the righteous, that he loves them enough to vindicate them, that he rules according to moral and religious standards that really count, that moral and religious behavior has consequences, that wickedness gets punished as well as righteousness rewarded, and that eternality, the eternality of punishment as well as that of reward invests the moral and religious behavior of human beings with ultimate significance. We are not playing games, Gundry said. In short, the doctrine of eternal punishment defends God's justice and love and supplies an answer to the problem of moral and religious evil rather than contributing to the problem. Mike Winger is a pastor, theologian. He has a podcast called Think Biblically or Bible Thinker. And he was challenged one day on this idea of millions and millions, maybe billions upon billions of people suffering for all eternity in a place called hell. And here's what he said in response to this person that was challenging him. He said this, does that make all prisons evil? Even if those in all prisons are rightly sentenced and punished, your presumption seems to be that God punishes the innocent. Our, our laws and courts do sometimes wrongly convict people, and every time that happens is an immoral and horrifying thing. But when God judges, we can be confident that the Holy One, who knows all things, is judging righteously and punishing properly. When God judges so many people, the rational thing is to conclude that we must be guilty, that we are not good people, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that we must be guilty of some serious moral failings rather than concluding that God is bad. Hell is eternal. Hell is conscious. Hell is punishment. Hell is for the wicked. Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology defined hell as such. He said this, and this is our big idea for today. Hell is a place of eternal, conscious punishment for the wicked. Hell is a place of eternal, conscious punishment for the wicked. And I know because I'm right there with you, that, that doesn't feel that good. I know how difficult this truth is. 
And yet Jesus taught in Matthew 10, verse 28, don't, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body and hell. There's, there's a reason to fear. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. That's consciousness. They're going to weep. They're going to gnash their teeth because of the, the pain, because of the agony. In Matthew 25, verse 41, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's eternal. It's an eternal fire. In Matthew 25, verse 46, he says, those condemned will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hell is a place of eternal punishment, eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. So what does that mean for you and me? As followers of Jesus, what, what, what do we do with this doctrine? And, and what does that mean for you if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus? Well, number one, what, what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus? It, it means this, we, we must maintain a faithfulness to the truth. A faithfulness to the truth. One theologian said it like this, importantly, the judgment oracles in the gospels about hell are not the rants of a man who looks forward to seeing sinners tormented for their sins. No, they are urgent warnings calling people to repent. Let us remember that to preach a warning of judgment so that people can avoid it is really an act of mercy. We, we cannot avoid or dodge this truth or make it seem more palatable or easy to hear. One theologian said that th this is why, this is why we, we must maintain faithfulness to the truth. He, he said this, if salvation is from judgment and if the final judgment is meted out in hell, then salvation is from hell, just pure and simple. A gospel that does not warn of a final judgment is like telling the citizens of ancient Pompeii that an umbrella made of straw will be sufficient enough to protect them should Mount Vesuvius erupt. It won't help them. And so we must maintain a faithfulness and accuracy to the truth, no matter how difficult this doctrine is to hear. It is to, to bear. We cannot change the truth or adjust the truth to suit our senses better. Not all who have died are in a better place. And not all who will die will go to a better place. We must be very careful about what we say, about what we post, about what we believe. There's a real seriousness here about where we allow ourselves to be led, where we lead someone else, leading them astray possibly. It's why Jesus said that to lead someone astray, it would be better for that person to have a millstone tied around their neck and for them to be tossed into the sea than to lead someone astray. That's how serious this is. Secondly, what, what, what does this mean for us? Well, if we're going to be faithful to this truth and we, we believe it accurately, it's going to produce in us a brokenness over the truth. That if we're, if we're seeing this rightly, and, and that's why I said I'm, I'm praying that you feel this, right, not just see it and understand, but that you feel it. If we're seeing this and we're, and we're feeling it, that it's going to produce a brokenness over the truth. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 9 that when he thinks of the lostness of his brothers, the, the Jews, he says this in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because Paul believed many of them were headed to hell, seeking to establish their own righteous standing before God rather than submitting their lives to Jesus, giving their lives to Jesus, where the fine for their sin could be paid for, where, where Jesus is offering his righteousness to you and I who have no righteous standing before God. Paul said they didn't understand God's way of making people right with himself. It wasn't about establishing your own righteous standing before God. It wasn't about doing better and trying harder. It was about giving your life to Jesus so that your sin could be forgiven and you could receive the righteousness of God, a righteousness that you did not earn, that Jesus earned for you on your behalf 
Paul said their rejection of the gospel produced great anguish and sorrow in his heart. You see, our our brokenness over this truth should change how we pray. Like if God answered every prayer from your house this past week, how many souls would have been saved? If we really believe this truth, we would be praying and crying out to God with brokenness for our family members, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors to believe the gospel. This truth changes our approach and how we preach and how we share the gospel. We don't, we don't preach with, with pride or with arrogance. No, we share the gospel. We preach the gospel with grace, with humility, with, with brokenness. One of my mentors, Greg, who's the leader of Harvest Evangelistic Association, said this. He said, Clayton, if you don't ever preach with tears, then you shouldn't ever be preaching. And that's how he trains all of their evangelists all over the world. That if you don't ever preach, with t- if, 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 if the gospel doesn't ever bring tears to your eyes as you preach, then you shouldn't be preaching in the first place. David Platt said this about unreached people groups, people who've never heard the good news about Jesus. He said this, the idea of unreached people groups must be untenable to a Christian. If this doctrine is true and we really believe it, then the idea of unreached people groups will be absolutely untenable. It will disturb you in your soul. Every week, we have a sermon meeting on Thursdays after lunch. And this past week on Thursday, we were meeting and I was presenting this message to our staff and I couldn't even get through it. I just broke down crying. I just said, you're just going to have to read it. I left that meeting. I felt sick. I couldn't even make the next meeting. I felt sick to my stomach. I felt sick all this week leading into today. This should disturb you in your soul. And if it doesn't, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not sure we really believe it then. Because if we were seeing this rightly, then, then I just believe you would feel it rightly. And to feel it rightly would, would be so disturbing to your soul. Like I'm, I'm really praying, and I know this is going to sound weird. I'm just, I'm just praying you're going to leave this place just disturbed. Just a little disturbed. And if we, if we did really believe what Jesus is saying here about hell, like if we really did believe it, we would be broken. But then also, finally, for those of us who are Christians, it would lead to sacrificing for the truth. We would be willing, just willing to, to sacrifice. Like, like Jesus said, the redeemed use their money, their time, their resources, their influence, their story, their voice to Redeem. They, they, they use all of those things to, to preach the gospel, to, to fund the preaching of the gospel so that people might hear that there is a savior who came to save them, to rescue them from this eternal suffering of their sin in hell. We would be willing to pay whatever the cost We would be willing to suffer any reputation or popularity or income or whatever it is. We would be willing to throw it all on the table and use whatever means necessary so that more people might hear the great news of the gospel that rescues them from hell. We would use our time, money, and resources to to show compassion, to serve and to meet needs in Jesus' name. We have the city seven core truths here. We also have our city seven core values here. And one of those values is mission and justice. It it speaks to our, our primary work of sharing the gospel, but then also these ministries of mercy and compassion that adorn the gospel that we profess. Here, here, here's how it goes. Mission and justice. Jesus told his disciples that following him meant becoming fishers of men. 
Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he commanded his disciples to make disciples of all the nations. So this evangelistic work of declaring the gospel is the primary ministry that the church has towards the world. We also believe that disciples of Jesus will show empathy towards and become defenders of the oppressed, the orphan, the unborn, the widow, the foreigner, the poor, and the prisoner. We believe that justice for the oppressed is a spiritual issue. So accompanying the primary works of evangelism, the preaching of the gospel, are ministries of mercy and justice that adorn the gospel that we profess. As we seek the city that is to come, as we long for the city that is to come when Jesus returns, we will partner with God in his redeeming of all things right now through ministries of mercy and compassion. Some people are like, what is that like a, is that like a social gospel kind of thing? No. No, it's just biblical Christianity. It's just discipleship. Our, our primary mission is to preach the gospel and make disciples, but accompanying that mission, we, we are doing whatever it takes. The, the redeem use their, their, their time, their money, their resources, their voice, their story, everything at their disposal to redeem, both spiritually and physically. We see all throughout church history that anytime the gospel is pushing back darkness, radical generosity, compassion, and care for the least of these and for the marginalized is always on display in the people of God as they preach the gospel. In the story, did you notice that the rich man has no name? The poor man has a name, his name's Lazarus. The, the, the rich man has no name. Theologians have said that the reason Jesus doesn't give a name to the man in the story is that God does not know him. Like doesn't know, like doesn't have a relationship with him because those that know God, those that have a relationship with Jesus would be using every means necessary, using everything at their disposal to rescue, to bless, to serve, to preach the gospel. Every means necessary, no excuses. The redeemed, those who have a relationship with God, those who know God, they use every means necessary, whatever the cost, to redeem. And then finally, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the challenge for you is to submit to this truth. It's to submit to the truth. Jesus and his story to these religious types, these, these Pharisees who are scoffing at him, who are rejecting him. He says, listen, in the story, there's a prophecy that even if someone rises from the dead, you won't believe them because you hate God, you hate his word, you hate his law. And so the reason you aren't following Jesus is because you don't want to. It's not that there's not enough evidence. Jesus is gonna say, there's going to be a man come back from the dead and you're still going to reject him. You still won't believe because ultimately while miracles are signs that point to the authority, that point to the power of the gospel, miracles don't do it. They just don't do it. They don't change people's hearts that don't want to be changed. And so Jesus says, you, you have the word. You now have a dead man who came back to life. And if you won't repent, it's just because you don't want to. You don't wanna submit yourself to God. You don't wanna come underneath the word of God, the, the, the law of God. But when you read just in the New Testament, the, the, the number of verses about hell and death and judgment, it would be like driving from here to Dallas and seeing a road sign with a warning to turn back every single mile. That's how many verses in the New Testament there are about 
death and judgment. That's how many warnings there are in the New Testament about turn back, turn your life around, give your life to Jesus. It would be like driving from here to Dallas and seeing a road sign every single mile warning you to turn back. And so if you've never given your life to Jesus this morning, here's what I wanna invite you to do. Here's what I wanna challenge you to do. Don't scoff at this, don't take it lightly. Like even if you're like, I'm not sure what to do with this, I'm not sure what to think, I'm not sure what to to, to believe. Listen, just don't turn away from it. Don't, Don't scoff at it, consider this. If I were you and this was true and I was weighing it, I would spend the rest of my life. That's how important this is weighing this, considering this. That's how important this is. Just don't turn away. Just continue to consider, continue to to study, continue to seek for the truth, regardless of how it makes you feel. Pursue the truth. Don't give up on your pursuit. Don't walk away from this so lightly. You're here today because God right now in his mercy and in his kindness, he is warning you once again to repent and turn to him. In Acts chapter two, the crowd that's convicted of their sin, they, they said, what do we do? They asked Peter, what do, what do we do? We've sinned against God, we're, we're headed to hell. They're broken over their sin. They said, what do we do? And Peter says in Acts chapter two, repent and turn to Jesus. Why? because he died in your place for your sin. He paid your fine for your sin so that you might be forgiven and made right with God. Peter didn't say, okay, well, from this day forward, do better and try harder. He said, no, repent of your sin, turn from your sin and give your life to Jesus. Second Corinthians five says it like this. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus who knew no sin, he became sin. Jesus was tormented. You remember that Greek word for torment, to be pounded? Jesus was pounded before the cross and at the cross for you in your place. He took on hell for you so that you might be forgiven of your sin and made right with God. He who knew no sin became sin for you so that you might receive the righteousness of God. Not do better and try harder to be righteous, that you might receive the righteousness of God. As you place your faith in Jesus, you give your life to Jesus, your sin's forgiven, you're made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven and Christian. As horrific as this doctrine is, Christian, this is what you've been saved from. It's what you've been saved from. And so while I've been sick to my stomach about this all week, I've also been so thankful, so grateful that God in his kindness and in his mercy would send his son Jesus because he loves you so much. The wisdom, the beauty of God in the gospel that at the cross, the, the, the love of God, the mercy of God meets the justice and the righteousness of God at the cross so that you and I can have a relationship with God and enjoy him forever. What a grace. What a mercy. How great awesome and powerful and loving and merciful and righteous and justice our God is. And so this doctrine, as horrific as it is for the Christian, it produces worship. It produces love. It produces thankfulness. And so this week, I want you to be disturbed by this, but on the flip side of that exact same coin, my prayer is that you are overwhelmed with the grace of God that you are overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratefulness this week on the flip side of that exact same coin. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. And as David said, even when it's a warning to us, we thank you for that warning because it is a kindness. It is a mercy that you warn us 
God, we thank you for the great news of the gospel that saves us from the penalty of our sin. And God, I pray that by the Spirit's power, you would help us to see and to feel this doctrine this morning. That we would see it, that we would believe rightly because of your word. We would believe it and trust it and submit ourselves to it. We would see it rightly. And then God, I pray that we would feel it rightly. That it would disturb us to our very core. But that, that disturbance would then produce in us a willingness to do whatever it takes to see the gospel get to our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, to, to unreached people groups. And so just in light of that prayer, there's a card in your chair. Would you just pick up that card right now and just hold it? Just heads bowed, eyes closed, just grab that card. That card is an invite card to our Easter services. Now I want you to take that card right now and just begin to pray, God, who would you have me to invite to Easter? Who would you have me text? Who would you have me call? Who would you have me give this card to? Would you just make that your prayer right now? God, would you disturb us so much with this doctrine that it would produce in us a urgency to share the gospel, to preach the gospel, to tell our stories, to invite our family members, friends, coworkers, and neighbors to church with us where they can hear the gospel. And God, as we begin to sing right now as a church family, we lift up the name of Jesus who suffered hell on the cross that we might be set free and forgiven of our sin, made right with God and spend eternity enjoying God forever as we were originally created to do. It's in your name we pray, amen. Would you stand as we worship?